I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich, and remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment below, do all of those things so we can start conversations that matter and create a new tomorrow today. Today with me, I have Calvin Corelli. Calvin is a SaaS founder, serial entrepreneur, and spiritual teacher. He founded a company called Simplero, which is an integrated software platform for coaches, authors, speakers, and uh, other information marketers to run their entire business in one place. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but he calls that more a LAS instead of a SaaS, which is love as a service versus software as a service. So, um, you know, your, your mission is amazing. And I'm going to let you tell a little bit more about who you are, why you created uh, this platform, but more than anything, what, what it is that you think the world needs to do and us you know, in it can do to make the world a little bit better place. So we'll get started with, with just kind of your, your quick bio. Tell us a little bit about how you became who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ari. Uh, super appreciate you having me on here. Um, looking forward to the conversation with you today. I, I started Simplero. So I, I, I was born and raised in Denmark and, and um, you know, was building always sort of an entrepreneur. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. I got into computers and programming super early when I was like five or six years old and um, got off to a good start on my career. Always working pretty much always working for myself. I had one job for a company in Boston um, just around uh, the year 2000, but that was it. But then really got into struggling as an entrepreneur, really kind of struggling all around as a human being, to be honest. Um, I felt like I had failed as a, as a father, as a, as a husband, as a son to my parents, as an entrepreneur on all levels. And so it really got me down this path of soul searching, of discovering, questioning beliefs, uh, learning to feel. I was, I grew up like, I don't know if you can recognize this from yourself or clients, right? That like, just not able to feel a thing. It was like, I was living from my neck up and all of this feeling stuff was like a mystery. And it was just every once in a while it would ex explode. So I went through that process of therapy and coaching and body therapy and working with a spiritual teacher. And that was what led to a moment where I was like, you know, finally asking myself the question, what am I here to do? What is it I really want to do versus just trying to be successful, just trying to make money, just trying to make ends meet, right? And that was what I sat down one day and, 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 and in that process, sort of arrived the answer to me. I'm here to integrate spirituality and entrepreneurship. At the core, we're not spiritual on Sundays or, you know, sort of, you know, on the side. It's, it's at the heart of what I do to, for a living, what I do in business. My, my company is here to be an integral part of my spiritual mission, if you will, my, my life purpose. And I was like, what I realized is that that's really 
how we can solve all of the challenges that we're facing as humanity is by it's not through government it's not through you know nonprofits to be it's business business is at the core of like creation and if business is done well it can really solve all of the challenges that we're facing and i mean business is just a collection of people coming together to solve problems it's kind of all it is right yep so yeah so so then you know my contrarian point of view in life is so if business is at the heart of the possibility of solving the world's problems, why do you think we've allowed companies as conglomerations of people to do things that are the antithesis of solving the world's problems, but more on the side of creating issues where there maybe previously weren't any issues? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question, right? Like, I think the, the short answer is because we're humans, right? Because, I mean, it's not isolated to uh, to companies, obviously. Governments do, you know, their fair share of problems, right? I think anytime humans come together, we we create a mess because we are a mess, which is why, for me, the goal really is to raise the the conscious level. I talk about physical, mental, emotional, spiritual maturity, those four, right? Physical, we got to be healthy. Body and mind are not separate, right? If your body is a mess, your mind is a mess. Um, Mental, learning to question your beliefs, um, just, you know, realizing that you are not your thoughts, you are not your ideas about yourself, right? Uh, emotional maturity, learning to not suppress feelings, not vomit them out and identify with your feelings, but just feel them and let them flow through you. And spiritual in the sense of having a sense of a bigger purpose in life, some sort of meaning. Without it, we're lost, right? And they all tie together. And and so once that happens and we grow up as people, I, I think, I, I, I bet you would agree, the most quote unquote adults in the world right now are really kind of children emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, right? It just happened to be in a in a in an adult body. So there is really is like a big massive maturity that needs to happen in the world if we want to solve these problems. And once that happens, solving the problems becomes fairly easy. And then business and government can become a vehicle for solving those challenges. But when it's done unconsciously, yeah, it's going to have the opposite effect. Yeah. It's interesting. Some of the statistics that I've, that I've heard and, uh, and research is that people are approximately the age of their first major trauma. Mm -hmm. So So it makes sense. Yeah. Whenever that first major trauma happened, they kind of, you kind of get locked in Yep the maturity level of that age. And then anytime something triggers that, uh, the same feeling that happened with that trauma, you revert back to that age of a person and that reaction and those kinds of things. So it's kind of an interesting way of looking at it in perspective. And, you know, in my world as a, as a therapist and healer and, and so on, the only way to, solve that problem is to go after the issues that are in the tissues, so to speak, that are, you know, you have a somatic trauma, which basically means a a trauma to your physical self. And the only way to 
heal that trauma is to go directly to where that trauma occurred. And so an emotional trauma almost always happens in the body as well. So when you look at like Chinese medicine, anger lives in the liver, worry lives in the kidneys, um, the sweetness of life in your pancreas, the, the lungs are joy, you know, feeling joy, your stomach is contentment. And so these emotions, you can imagine anytime somebody uh, says, right, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this, this, uh, you know, little queasiness in my gut. Well, that's an emotion that's creating a physical response, right? Yeah. So tell us how, how you've come along this, this journey of finding out that, you know, you were having some of these kinds of issues and what did you do? Like, I mean, the, the actual steps that you took to start the process of healing. And let's go with the beginning of that process. Cause you know, I know a lot of people, it's the beginning that they struggle with the most. Yeah. So let me just on what you were saying with the issue in the tissue and the age and stuff for, so I was fortunate because I'm from Denmark. I discover there's a, there's a, a therapy form there called body SDS, which is body therapy. It's a system that's developed in Denmark by this incredible um, genius past now, but they're like third and fourth generation are now actively, you know, working on it. My friend, I've become friend with the founder of the education there. He's 56, 57 karate champion and has educated 600 therapists over there. So it's one of my projects actually to bring that to the U S because I I've tried a ton of different things and this is just so powerful at really getting to those uh, core wounds in the body. Because right? a lot of the stuff is you can't really get to it with words because it's precognition. And so the body is such a powerful tool. So I, I, I'm so with you on that. And one of, part of my journey has been to rediscover my relationship with my masculine side and with my father. And so that was a very deliberate process of, of reconnecting with sort of like an six, eight year old version of myself and then figuring out how to reparent him up to being, you know, a young, healthy adult. But that's more recent. That was like three years ago that that journey started for me. Um, the the going back in time to answer your question is like the beginning. I think very early moment was in two thousand three when when a friend of mine I had I had called an advisory board meeting for my company, and brought some some really smart friends of mine people, people that I knew and afterwards one of them looked me in the eyes and you're like dude we've been here for three hours and I still don't know what you want and there's something in that question that just made me like wait what like you know how those like questions that just open open a gap in your consciousness your mind somewhere and you're like wait I didn't know that there was a like anything, like there was a hole here, but now there is. It was like, I didn't know that you were allowed to want anything in business. I thought it was all like, you know, oh, we just do business stuff. Um, <laughs> right? And, and then I was like, I didn't know what I wanted. I just wanted to be quote unquote successful uh, so that I would feel okay or worthy. I didn't have any clue what I wanted. And I think that was the moment that sort of sparked 
that realization that I don't know what I want because I can't feel a thing. I can't feel myself. And so one of the things I did was my mom had a friend who was a therapist, really interesting guy, by the way. So he had started as a surgeon doing uh, breast operations on women with breast cancer. And what he had noticed was that they all had the same psychological pattern. There was resentment towards men and there was resentment towards their own femininity. And so he was like, what is that? And so he went back to school to study psychology because he's like, hey, if I can solve this before I have to cut these ladies' breasts off, that would kind of be a lot better. And so that was what he dedicated. He's passed now, but that was what he dedicated his life to since then. And so I, I kind of found his phone number and gave him a call. And I was like, hey, I think I need some help here. I think I need to talk to a therapist. And I was terrified. I was terrified of admitting that I wouldn't, I didn't want my parents to know. I didn't want any of my friends to know. I had this idea that if you need to talk to a therapist, you're really broken, right? That's kind of admitting defeat. Like at that point, you might as well go kill yourself. But then like, I, I, I wasn't going to do that. So this was as close as I got, but that was really my belief system was that there had to be something terribly wrong with you if you needed that. Like I learned, no, <laughs> like everybody needs help, right? We're all kind of, you know, messed up with our, from our, from our upbringing. And it's our job to, to go sort out that mess, right? Reparent ourselves because our parents probably didn't do a great job, but that was like, it was a big step for me. I'll tell you just admitting that I needed help. And yeah, that was that was my first step. And then like, once I got going on that, I was like, all right, let's, you know, I hired a coach at one point that felt kind of safe too. Right. It's like business coaching. Yeah, that's good. Hired a coach. And she was like a couple sessions into it. She was like, you should, you should take this coach education and, and, and learn to become a coach. And I was like, wait me, like I'm a terror. I'm not a people person. I, everybody tells me I'm terrible with people. Like, what would I do doing that? But I did. And I loved it. And so you know, and I remember thinking like, all right, once I've taken this education, then I know everything there is to know about like psychology, like, you know, humans and how their brains work. Yeah, no, I didn't. it's a pretty deep topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, if you were to, to just take a look behind the scenes, so to speak, behind the curtain at what it is that is at the root cause of kind of all of this, let's say, opposition to nature, right? Mm -hmm. Which is opposition to nature, meaning we don't do the things that we know to do to feel good, like connect with community and family on a regular basis. That's something we've studied. We know that the people who do that live the longest are the happiest, et cetera. We don't do that here. So why don't you kind of break apart or break down for us some of the, the things that you've found to be solutions for kind of the, the state we find ourselves in as far as emotionally drained. I mean, you obviously we see all of the, the current suicides and abuse and 
protests and dissatisfaction with the world as, as it is. And then get into kind of my perspective on it is we created this shit out of our imagination and now we're complaining about it rather than fixing it. So if we can realize that we've made this whole thing up, maybe we can start the process of making it better. So what, what is your take on from your education, the experiences that you've had on what it is that we would need to do to kind of come back to that natural way of being with each other and with ourselves. Yeah. I, I think at the root of it is us believing our thoughts, right? Like we believe that the thoughts that are in our heads are true right and that they have something valuable to tell us which sometimes they do but oftentimes they don't right if you could imagine living in a state where there are no thoughts or 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 that whatever thoughts are there are just kind of passing by and you're not you know attached to them like meditation right once you do that in that state inside you'll find every single time is this sense of spaciousness and joy, and you're just present in the present moment, right? There's never any um, dissatisfaction in that. Never, ever, right? It doesn't exist, right? The dissatisfaction only exists because we're telling ourselves a story about something that should be the way it's not, and then we become unhappy, right? It's the only way that happens, and it happens reflexively, um, and we'll like, we can still have feelings in that state and that thoughtless state, if you will, but they pass through quickly, right? Like they just like, you know, they're just waves and we ride the wave and then it's gone and then it's out. Right. So it's, it's when we, when we get stuck in our belief patterns and then that we do that so habitually that it really gets in and becomes part of our biochemistry, right? Like it, it infects our liver. I remember you mentioned with the liver and the anger, right? That I saw a study some years ago where they gave multivitamins to prison inmates and violence in the prison dropped because it actually helped their liver and then they were less, less violent, right? It's like these things are, are tied together. So I really think at the, at the root of it is our believing in our thoughts, like, oh, I got it. I'm, I'm, I'm behind. I, I got a rush. I got like all these things. Right. And then we, then we just like stop being present with ourselves and then with others. I mean, that's, that's the root. So you've had, I'm sure a lot of clients, a lot of people pass through your, your software. So you get to see a lot of data. What do you think is the number one thought that you've seen with your clients, the number one thing that is recurring amongst uh, the people that, that you've talked to, your clients, the data that you've seen, that number one thing that's stopping people from being happy, the number one thought that's keeping them out of, you know, being in life fully. Yeah, it's, I just need to get to here and then I will, right? I just need like, 
you know, more customers, or I just need like this to change or my health or my, whatever it is. It's kind of like that, you know, like the, the horse or the donkey with a, a carrot on a stick out in front. Right. And that's how we live our lives. Like I just got to get this, like finish with, with school. Then I, I got to get this degree. Then I got to get this job. Then I just got to get this promotion. Then I just got to get like, whatever it is. Right. Like, you know, I'll just have to find a, a good partner and then like have kids then like when the kids are in school, when they're out of school, like when they leave, like, and then we wake up one day and we're old and retired and we're like, oh yeah, like all the things that we were going to do. And now we don't have the health or the energy or, you know, the desire anymore. It's, it's so habitual for us to always be looking to the future. Mm. <clears throat> so looking to the future when I look to the future, because, you know, and, I, and I'll take a saying um, out of context and out of probably exact, <laughs> exact repeating. So it's, uh, it's me just paraphrasing, but um, a man's grasp or reach should exceed his grasp or else what's heaven for? Yeah. That's the saying. And yeah. the idea is that you're reaching much, much, much further than you think you possibly can grasp because that's how you reach to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that seems to be what you just said is something that is causing people a lot of anguish and emotional drainage and, and pain, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, the challenge is, uh, there's a concept that I talk about, which is the satisfied drive, right? So I love that like divine dissatisfaction. It's never good enough. We're always striving to do better. We're always going for more. I think that's a natural part of life, right? A tree is constantly growing, but that doesn't mean that you have to be dissatisfied with where you're at, right? It's that feeling that like, okay, this I'm unhappy right now because I feel unworthy. That was my thing, right? I'm not worthy until I'm I'm successful to some metric, whatever arbitrary metric that was. Sometimes it would be like, I have to have a company with 50 employees. I think that's because my mom's software company. She grew it to about 50. Other times it was like, I have to have Bill Gates level wealth before I turn 30, that was a little bit more challenging and it was kind of waver, right? In order to prove myself worthy of even existing, right? That's not a good place to be in. It's not, right? So it's really the ability to love ourselves and love life as it is, love the present moment, love reality exactly as it is right now and yet still be driven out of love, but not out of fear, not out of unworthiness and needing to prove ourselves, but, but out of the love of creating stuff, of, of expressing yourself and putting it out there. That's where we want to, that's where we want to create from. Right. Right. So the, the question becomes, you know, we we're in this interesting world at the moment where there is the perception of a massive amount of problem, meaning we're being locked down, we're being shut down, we're being um, censored, all these kinds of things, right? <clears throat> and so the complaining is 
at this level of of unimaginable <laughs> worldwide whining, you know, so to speak. Um, the people that I've talked to that I t- that I like to talk to <laughs> are the people who are creating solutions, who are pivoting, who are moving towards something else. And that gives them a sense of value. And what you're talking about with this unworthiness, I think that this is a bigger issue than than we talk about for sure. How many people, and this is going out to the audience right now, how many of you have felt unworthy in your life? Not just unworthy until, but unworthy even though. Even though I've already been a success, even though I've already made a massive impact, even though, so if you're a leader in the world right now and you're still feeling that I'm unworthy thing. So how do you unpack that unworthy thing for your clients? Because I don't think that most people understand how to unpack that. That's such an ingrained human mindset place to be. Yeah. Um, I think I, I agree. Um, and I think, and, and related to is this sense of guilt, right? Guilt for, for, for like ha- maybe having achieved and you don't, again, quite feel worthy of it. And then that leads to sense of guilt or, you know, sense of privilege or whatnot. Um, Yeah. To me, it's, it's one of the things that, that tends to work for me is to just say, all right, so what, so what, maybe I am unworthy. That can I, can I just accept that? Can I live with that? Like, what is it really? It's, it's a, it's a belief, right? that starts a feeling and then that feeling we like label as something unwanted like oh i don't want this like oh bad feeling right we don't even really feel it but we just don't want it there's a saying that i love which is every any struggle is a struggle to avoid feeling a certain feeling and so we just go out of our ways to avoid touching that thing that makes us feel unworthy instead of going the other way and just being like all right let me just feel it and then let me one of the things i love to do is instead of like going into sort of the label of the feeling oh unworthiness just what is the sensation is it like a slight vibration in my chest is it like tingling sensation like what is the physical sensation forget the label forget the thoughts just focus on your body when you go to that really unworthy place like what is what is it the body sensation and then just breathe into that and allow it to expand and expand and just like roll with it enjoy it and what you realize oh it's actually kind of fun it's a little ticklish it's a little you know it's you realize it's not dangerous at all it's not scary at all and then it stops having this this power over you and maybe it's okay like instead of being like oh no i want to prove that i am worthy like go away stupid unworthiness feeling right just allow yourself to maybe, maybe I am unworthy, unworthy for what, what does it even mean? Right. And then starts to kind of break down. Right. Bucky uh, Fuller, who's an inspiration for the show. He was kind of the inspiration for my book, A New Tomorrow. I don't know if you know who Buckminster Fuller was, but um, 
one of his quotes, and, and I'm going to bastardize this, you know, pretty good, but it's, we have to get over the auspicious notion that people need to work in order to be of value. There is currently, and this was back in the 60s, he says there is currently approximately 10,000 people on the planet that have the technology and creativity to create um, enough technology that nobody else on the planet will even need to work, let alone have that be the, their value system. So, you know, going with this thought, since I completely paraphrased the actual quote, <laughs> but going with the thought that we don't need to work to be of value, that completely goes against the nature of this country, uh, uh, at least of the U United States and, and a lot of countries as well, is that we need to work in order to be of value. And yet <clears throat> we end up working 40 to 80 hours of, uh, you know, a week of, of, the, of our life and doing that for 40 plus years and never really living. So how do we, how do we break that auspicious notion that in order for people to be of value and deserve food and health and life, right? That they need to be actively working at a thing that may or may not even be the thing that they're, you know, passionate about, good at, or wanting to do. Yeah. So here, here's my thoughts on that. I think there's an inherent need for humans to feel of value, to be of service to other humans, right? To do something that other people appreciate. Um, and, and the way that we show that, tend to show that appreciation is with money, right? That, that we exchange values, ideas, money. I, th I think that's deep in us, like that need to contribute in some way, to, to be part of this exchange. I think, I do think it's, um, I think any form of, of feeling unworthy or guilty or wrong is unhelpful. I think, you know, self-love is superior. I think a lot of the things that people associate with, you know, people being too full of themselves and that kind of stuff is really, you know, just lack of self-love really. Um, so I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of self-love. So, um, and, and there is this tendency, right? Like whenever we get new technologies that allows us to work more efficient, so we'll have more free time. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that never ever happens. Cause it just like, you know, then it just ups the, the competition game. And the reality is we live in a, in a competitive world, right? That's just by nature, uh, that, that's how it works, right? Like just in the animal world, it's still a competitive world. So um, yeah, so I'm not really sure. One thing I'm, I'm not personally a fan of, of the government stepping in and, and sort of like, you know, taking over and paying people. Like for me, it's like the, the, the more that we can just do amongst people, amongst ourselves, the better it is. Uh, so, so yeah, I don't, I'm just, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of put my two cents in here, right at that, at, at this place, mm -hmm. the government is people. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in a way I want to really drive this home to the audience. The government is people. We made it. We created it. We built the systems around it. We turned it into this 
massively, you know, massive machinery of, of life, but we created it. And I, and I'm really, I get really tired (laughs) of people saying things like the government shouldn't, as if it's something separate from we, the people, right? Because we, the people are the people that make up the corporations. We make up the government. We make up the rules. We make up the systems and we make up the entire way in which we live by. And I find that people use the government as a really great scapegoat so that they don't have to take any responsibility in what's going on by saying, well, the government shouldn't, or the government should, or the government this, as if it's something separate from us. And so what I would say to to what you just said is to the audience, if you don't like how big the government is, how slow the government is, how inefficient the government is, how whatever it is that you have an opinion about the government for, you are the person responsible for making that government different. So if we got 50 million people who are really dissatisfied with the government that's made up of like 500, 600 people, then shouldn't uh, those 50 million people stop the machinery of the government and shift it or do something to change it or you know, run for office so you could be a part of the solution versus a part of the the problem and, and the whining. So it's just my controversial side that says, I get it that people think that these governments are such evil entities and the people who run them are such agenda-driven people. But the fact of the matter is it's you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. Like we, we, we like for some, for some version of we, uh, like people created the government, right. And people run, run the government. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah. And there's, there, I think my point is just, there's, you know, there's several organizational vehicles with which to achieve certain ends, right. Government is one business is another, just, neighbor to neighbor or communities or, or, you know, are other vehicles, NGOs or vehicles, nonprofits. So there's different organizational structures that can achieve different things. And some are better suited for certain things than others. Right. Um, Absolutely. I, and, and that I can totally agree with. And like I said, the only, the only caveat I would say is I don't find anything different about a bureaucrat at a company versus a bureaucrat at a government versus a bureaucrat in your home. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The difference is like the monopoly situation that the government inherently has. Right. Whereas if it's a company and then you might presumably have choice, assuming that they're not a monopoly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating how I keep seeing these numbers just anecdotally of like how many people distrust the government and yet, you know, keep giving power to the government. Right? It's like, wait, <laughs> what's the disconnect here? Right. Exactly. This cognitive dissonance about, who needs to do, right? So mm-hmm. to, to people, I think that we've created a society where 
you got to work 40 to 80 hours a week just to survive. And even mm-hmm. that may or may not be a good survival, right? In, in normal jobs. And, um, and so people have stopped doing civic kind of work in many cases and, uh, and paying attention to the issues of the day. And therefore the issues of the day have snowballed and by snowballing now it's like this massive thing versus what could have been something small that just could have been melted away now you've got this massive solid ball of you know rolling ice <laughs> right run yeah. over the town so to speak and uh and so yeah we we you know getting back to a place where people can remember their civic duties in some cases, their community duties. And, and, you know, I get it. Politics are all about national and international now, but getting into your local community government where the initial fraud is happening or the initial, right. you know, yeah. uh, where, where that's going to be what really affects you, the audience the most. So anyway, mm-hmm. That's my- yeah, and, and, and that's a good point because I was just talking to someone who's who's working with the, I forget it was honestly if it was like New York City or New York State um, government, whatever, whatever, like the board, like whatever the, I don't even know what it's called, but like the kind of like Congress for, for the city or the state level. And they're just having tremendous trouble just getting people who are willing to run, right? People who are willing to, to you know, occupy those seats, like, um which is fascinating because like it's, it's work that, that, you know, needs to be done, but there's very few people who are, who are willing to do it. And I totally understand why they're not real. I mean, I wouldn't do that. Right. Like I, it's, I could, you know, create a much better life and make more money doing, doing what I'm doing. Why would I, why would I do that? So it is, it is kind of fascinating. Um, uh, I had another thought, which was, um, I forget what that was, but anyway, yes. Yeah, I, I would rather be a consultant to the government than in the government, but that's yeah. that's just me because I like to be artificial. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I like to to not have a position. I like to to yeah. not artificially label myself as any one thing. And I think that when you're a politician, we've gotten to a place where you have to label yourself something. Right. Um, so those labels to me as well are part of what helps create this divide. Right. It's, there's an interesting, uh, t- there's a town over in the UK called Froome, F-R-O-O-M-E, where there is a party called Independence for Froome. So the city council has 17 seats and this guy decided to start a party where there's no party discipline. So each member of the party is an individual. They get to vote however they want. They're just a party for technical reasons. First time they ran, they got 10 seats out of 17. Next time they got all 17. And so they have this process where when they argue, they have facilitators sometimes and they'll they'll have this process where they need to argue the opposite viewpoint of what they like. They have to switch sides and argue each other's case, et cetera. And they bring in people. So it's more of a problem solving thing than than traditional politics. And it presumably works really, really well. So I'm fascinated with things like that. Right. Like there are things that we can do to solve this if people care enough. I remember what I was thinking before, which is what you're talking about was people having to work, you know, you know, a lot of hours, they don't have the time, et cetera. Um, 
I'm also fascinated with how it seems like I, I grew up in, I live in New York City now, but I grew up in Denmark. And I think that has been advantageous in many ways. You had, you know, great school and, and my parents were very good at, you know, they taught me to program and all these things. Um, but there seems to be a complete lack of teaching people fundamental life skills uh, in this country, right? Which is why we end up on that treadmill because you don't need to live on that treadmill if you invest. There are communities that are, that are consistently investing in their education. I think like Chinese Americans tend to be really good at that, Asians maybe in general, right? Some Jewish, there's Jewish culture around like get educated, you know, get good grades, you know, put in hard work stay ahead of the game. I remember also just, they just released the Hillbilly Elegy on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet, but I read the book. Have you heard of it? No. So it's a guy named JD Vance and he, he grew up in, I think in the Appalachian uh, sort of redneck country. And when his parents, you know, grew up, you could make a decent middle, you know, middle uh, class, income by dad working some factory job they could have their house and kids and he would pay for the thing and like upward mobility and things were working and now these communities are destroyed everybody's on drugs and opioids and there are no jobs the factories have closed and it's 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 you know crap show um and schools are terrible too what changed it for him so he got out and got a good job and most of his friends didn't. One of the things that changed it for him was he got into the military, so the military, he got into the Marines and in the Marines, they taught him how to eat, how to exercise and how to, how to manage money. So he was about to go out and buy a car. And then his Sergeant was like, what kind of car are you getting? And he's like, Oh, this car. And he's like, you can't afford that. Like get this one. It's much more, much more practical and economical. And then he was going to get like, you know, some kind of loan. He's like, how are you going to finance it? Oh, just whatever, you know, finance from the dealers. Like, no, don't do that. Shop around, get a good, get, you know, good interest, get a good deal on the, on the mortgage. And so these fundamental life skills that he'd never learned from, from his parents, from his upbringing, from his school, you know, learned it in, in the military. And it fascinates me that like the military is also government, right? So there are parts of the government that actually is able to teach people some of the skills that they actually need to survive and function in society. And then there are others that do the exact opposite. Well, since you didn't grow up here, you probably didn't realize that while you were growing up here and I was growing up or while you were growing up there and I was growing up here, they actually did have things like home ec in mm -hmm. schools and elementary schools in, you know, in high schools and so on. We had classes in cooking, sewing, checkbook balancing, things like that. They have since taken those things out of schools in exchange for the football program, basically, <clears throat> because that football program makes them money, but they've taken fundamentally out any kind of life skills and trade skills. So when I was going to school, we had auto shop, we had photography, we had, you know, obviously yearbook and journalism, we had debate clubs, we had youth and government programs. We had wood shop, metal shop. I mean, we had all kinds of trades that we could learn in high school. And those things stopped 
right around the late 60s, early 70s, or and then they started, you know, or they didn't stop, but they started to, to slow down, um, you know, thereafter. And as they started to slow down, we saw this big push for people to be into college, go into college, go into college, go into college. And as people would go into college and then obviously graduate with huge amounts of debt and not really wanting or passionate about or able to be in the job of the thing that they studied in college, we started to realize that when they took the trade schools out of high school, they, they took an entire population and turned them into people that could only get jobs at assembly, you know, as assemblymen and manufacturing plants and so on and so forth, because they no longer had the skills to do trades that they might've been interested that might've paid them more kind of interesting way of, of dealing with, with a society and the excuse in the politics of that, those educational plans is we don't have enough money to educate our kids. We need, you know, teachers are asking too much. We can't pay them enough these kinds of things. And so we've really literally sold our kids, you know, future to the highest bidder, so to speak, and, and shifted the way that they can even um, think about what trades and what things they might be actually interested in doing to make that impact. And we kind of are directing them if you don't do this, you won't get ahead, which means that you have to do this. And if all of your friends are doing this, this is the other part of that problem, which helps with the emotional blocking is that they have to take drugs in order to get the grades to match the other kids in order to get into the position so that they could be in the college. And then in the college, I mean, I got college level, you know, age kids, uh, stepkids, and the, the drug use that is in those schools is unbelievable. And it's all straight, non-recreational, not all of it, but obviously, you know, it's non-recreational. It's all study. It's all get better in school, but they're not learning anything about how to live in the real world, as you were saying. Yeah. It's, I mean, that what's going on with colleges seems to be, to be nuts, right? Like just the whole, the college student loans that are, that you can't bankrupt out of and that is are subsidized by the government. Like it's, you know, this seems to be some, some, some high level corruption going on there, right? You're like, I mean, I have, I have kids, my kids are 13, 15. They're in Denmark uh, with their mom. We, we divorced a, a decade ago, but if they were here, like, I mean, like I would never pay for college for them. I would never encourage them to go to college. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't, in Denmark, university is, is, you know, paid for through taxes. I wouldn't encourage them to go to university either. Right. I, I went, I got a computer science degree. Um, I learned way more in my first year after I, I quit, I got a bachelor's degree. I was on my way to a master's. I quit that and took a job instead. I learned so much more the first job out of college than I learned five years in, in, in university. So. Yeah. Do you think that, that there's a reason why college and university is 
getting that reputation of being as unnecessary when, you know, in my parents' generation and obviously for me, it was like, if, if you didn't go to college and I didn't go to college, I went to a trade school, but my brother, you know, was, if you're not going to college, you're not ever, ever going to be a success in, in life. That's the programming. And now that programming is, is getting shifted to where, you know, a lot of people are starting to say college isn't, isn't where it's at. You know? Yeah. I mean the internet, right? Like there is, there's, anything that you could possibly want to learn, you can find online, most of it for free, right? Um, you know, there's libraries too, obviously still, right? But you know, books, online courses, you can study from from one the, from these universities. If you want to buy like single courses and things like that, you can do that. For me, it's about learning. You have to be passionate about where you're learning. You have to want to learn it because you want to, because you care right? Because you're interested in it. That's the only way that you're ever going to re- get really good at something. And, you know, presumably you're learning it to use it. And so if you're not really that interested in it and excited about it, like, why would you, why would you bother? Right? So, and if you're excited, the you learn, you learn by doing more than by studying, right? You can read it and study it, but then you have to do it and do it and do it and do it over and over again. So putting it into something where you're whether it's you're starting something for yourself right, or you're working for someone else, put it into effect, see it drive results. And that's how you really learn stuff. Right. So yeah, there's never been more resources for anyone to learn, which also proves that if you're not improving your skills, if you're not improving your, 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 your body and your mind and your life in, in, in every way that you care about, it's on you. Right. There's no excuses at this point, right? Like it's available to anybody with a smartphone. There's so much stuff available for free to anyone who has a smartphone. There's just zero excuse. So if you're not progressing, it's because you don't want to. It's just because you don't care enough. Interesting. So let's talk about um, the menu. So the menu they found is if it's, more than two pages, it causes people to go into choice overwhelm. If- Are you talking about like food menus at a restaurant? What kind of, what are you talking about? A restaurant. Mm-hmm. They found the science, the study, the research has found that if there's more than two pages on a restaurant menu, then people go into choice overwhelm and they are less satisfied with their choice than if they have- a one-page or a two-page menu and only have certain things that they can get, they choose what they want and they're happy with their choice because the limit. So <clears throat> you talked about going on to Google. Google is to me a, a couple billion page menu. And, you know, you got Dr. Google, you got, uh, <laughs> you know, that a lot of people are using for their, their, their medical questions. But the idea behind this is that do we have too many choices and not enough truth to where people can't make a decision, they get overwhelmed with information and all of a sudden they can't make a choice, they can't make a decision, they can't make an action because of this overwhelm and, uh, and now they're not satisfied because of too much choice. 
Well, yes. And uh, I mean, that's not going to go away, right? That's never going to change. So we, that's just a fact that we have to adapt. Like the, the being unhappy with your choice is just back to what we were talking about a while ago with like, you know, believing your thoughts. Right. So, uh, so just ignore that voice. It's one of the things that we're not, it seems we're not teaching people is like fundamental thinking skills. Right. I'm not even going to say critical thinking skills, just any kind of thinking, honestly, is in, in short supply, right? So so just learning to be like, okay, what is the problem? What is the outcome that I want? Even, I mean, honestly, even that is one of the things that fascinates me about politics is we're constantly debating this intervention or policy versus that. And nobody's saying, well, hey, wait, 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 stop, a minute, stop for a second. What does success look like? right? What do we actually want to achieve here? And like, can we get agreement on that first? Right. And then, all right, what parameters are there for us, a solution for an, for a strategy? Well, like what values do we have? Can we get agreement on that? And then we can start brainstorm solutions, right? But if you haven't figured out what you want first, then nothing else makes sense, right? No, you know, the, it, everything else just becomes a waste of time. And we, people don't get these basic things about how to solve problems. I see it too in business. So many people who are focused on tasks, what are the things I need to do? And I'm like, well, but like, it's not working. We're like, this is what, this is the goal. This is the outcome. Like what else can we try? Right. Cause that didn't work. And so there's some fundamental thinking skills that people are missing. So yeah. This is one of the biggest issues that I have system wide in almost every system that we've created in the last 20 plus years maybe 30, maybe 40, depends on the system, is we're all about procedures versus results. So we do digital marketing right now because that's my biggest um, challenge. <laughs> I'm not a digital marketer. Put a body in front of me, I could turn it into an Olympic champion, not a problem, easy peasy. Put a, a computer in front of me and tell me to digitally market with web hooks and funnels and triggers and minutiae. And I go, ah! and so as I go to hire people, uh, my biggest frustration is they're trying to charge me for tasks. Like, well, if I put 15 posts on your Instagram, that's going to be this amount of money. If I post, if I, if I add, Instagram and Twitter, that's that amount of money, even though it's the same post and I created it and I just did it twice, um, but I'm gonna charge more. And then if I do this, it's that amount of money. I'm like, okay, so what are the results that are gonna come? Well, I can't guarantee you results. And I go, okay. And then I look at medicine and I, and I see the same thing. It's, um, we need to do an MRI or a, an MRI for, for a knee injury, right? So you tear a meniscus or muscle ligament, you need to do an MRI. But if you go to a doctor, first thing that you got to do is an X-ray. Why? Because you got to do an X-ray before you do an MRI. Why? X-ray is not going to show me what an MRI is going to show me. So why do I need to do the X-ray first? It's another procedure. It's another task. It's another thing that makes absolutely no different in outcome. Zero. Zilch, nada. For you, but for them, it makes <laughs> pocketbook, right? It makes pocketbook. But what that does is it creates a scenario in which we create incentivized fraud. Totally. Right? We incentivize 
fraud by doing those kinds of things. We do it in companies. We do it in business. We do it in all kinds of the aspects of our life these days because we're doing task, as you said, versus mm -hmm. results. And so let's talk about that a little bit because I just had my, my nice little rant, but what do you think the cost is of, of task versus result-oriented thinking? Oh boy. I mean, it's, it's massive, right? It's everywhere. And it's, it's the, it's the lack of transparency in, in choosing, right? Cause if you the, could choose between doctors that did it one way versus the other, like, duh. Right. But there's no transparency there. Oftentimes there's, there's like de facto monopolies. So, and, and then it's the population just being aware of it and, and, and choosing based on that. We have this tendency to just give our authority away to whomever. Right. I think it was, Werner Erhard, founder of, of Est back in the day, he had this saying that people walk around with their umbilical cord in hand, just looking for someone to plug it in <laughs> somewhere, somewhere to plug it into, which I think is a great way to say it. Uh, I think it's really true. Like people are constantly looking to outsource their authority to someone, right? Or something. So yeah. Uh, um, but it's, 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 Everywhere, it's like one of my pet peeves is the the whole cookie thing, like EU and GDPR, all these privacy laws, and like these, especially these like cookie banners that pop up everywhere. It's like they're designed for people who visit like one or two websites per week or maybe per day, right? But when you visit like fifty to hundred websites in a day, you end up like clicking that damn thing over and over again. And we condition people to just click the yeah, whatever, go away, right? Like we. We don't read them. We can't. And so that's another, like, someone is making a law that's, like, making us, you know, more privacy secure or whatever on paper. But in practice, it does nothing. It does the exact opposite at great cost to every company business that needs to implement this, every user of the internet that needs to click these stupid ass things, right? It's, it's just... There's no accountability. We're not holding other people, businesses, po you know, politicians, uh, bureaucrats accountable for actual results. And there's that, yeah, it's like a lack of culture of thinking that way. The cost is immense. I honestly think, like, I heard a talk by Milton Friedman a while back where he was talking about how when he was in high school, the government, all of U.S. government, all levels, federal, state, local, all fees and taxes, everything included, was about 10% of the entire GDP. I don't know what the number is now, but I'm sure it's a lot higher. But I don't, I don't really think that we're getting that much value for our money. And that's just at the, at the sort of government level, right? That, that this is, but this is everywhere, that we're just wasting so many resources. I wouldn't be surprised if the number is 90% wasted resources based on this inability to think clearly. What do you think the, uh, the, the about, I've heard this name touted, but uh, the wholly owned subsidiary, <laughs> you know, corporation United States of America or United States of America is a wholly owned subsidiary of corporate <laughs> America, right? Yeah. So I think that's pretty true. Yeah. Has become this corporate shill, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> to me, the answer, you know, there, there are pretty obvious answers of how this can be renegotiated. 
right? Getting out lobbyists, changing uh, the, uh, the elections from ones that have to be funded to, you know, just government. We own the airwave, so to speak, because we're the FCC. So why don't we just take back the air? Uh, one of the things that I loved about Ross Perot way back in the day. Uh, now, here's what we got to do. We got to get rid of this NAFTA business right here. But he would go on air buying his own airtime. We don't even need to buy your own airtime anymore. You can get paid in sponsorship to go on YouTube. But what I would love to see politicians do is in 30-minute segments with now it's PowerPoints instead of charts, but I want to see them explain their policies in detail and what they're going to do and then compare them to the other person's policy and what it's going to do and do it in a way that's factual. I would love to see that, right? So that we can make decisions about policies and bills. Part of the, the wholly owned subsidiary is that every single bill is filled with pork, right? It, what they call what they call pork or whatever. I don't, I don't know the exact term, but the, it's filled with this bill is for this thing. And yet it's got 50 things in it that have been negotiated for other, you know, special interests and, and so on. It would be nice if we did this bill is for this thing. Nothing else is allowed to be in that bill, right? There are things that I believe we could do easily to shift it. But what I want to get at for you is the mentality that we need, the emotional intelligence and maturity that we talked about at the beginning that we need in order to not be reactive, but be proactive in what we're doing and the way we're doing it so that we can actually accomplish this stuff versus just talking about it in sound bites. As a, yeah, as to a, me, it's, it's, what's that? I said, that was a long intro. I apologize for, <laughs> Drew, no, let's go. But I wanted to be really clear for you. <laughs> yeah. To me, the problem, the challenge is that that the minute you make these rules, as long as the incentives are the way that they are, the economic incentives, people are going to like the people who want to do bad stuff are going to find a way around it. Right. And as long as we as people don't really care or we're just so accustomed to like, yeah, politicians are corrupt. It's just the way it is. I don't see that really changing, right? Like you can say, well, okay, campaign finance law, you can only fund like, you know, government funds the game spring, blah, blah, blah. But then you have Citizens United, right? Like the, which, which is free speech, like, what are you going to do? Over, hmm? Overturn it. <laughs> yeah, but we still have free speech, right? So, so are you and I allowed to sit here and talk and say, hey, I like this politician. I don't like, like where is... Where is the dividing line? I don't, maybe there's a simple solution. I'm not sure that there is a simple solution there. And, and that, that it wouldn't be something that, again, people are going to find ways around, right? So uh, that's my, I'm skeptical, calling me skeptical. I'm open. I'd love that. But, but I don't know that. What I, my thinking is like from, again, from a bottom up grassroots, like the more 
um, sort of awake the people are, the more the more we live our lives, right? It's like Joseph Campbell, like or Gandhi, like be the change that you want to see in the world. Like it starts here. It starts with you and I, and I, um, and with the, everybody here listening, starting to live their lives this way, and then naturally you're going to start to demand more of others, including our leaders and our quote unquote, so-called leaders, the people, the people in charge, right? Yeah. You know, here, here's my only caveat to that. I agree that people need to take personal responsibility for shifting who they are and that that will make a massive change in how we live. And I, and I'll go back to the disagreement that the government or the thing or the whatever is somehow outside of that process. It's mm -hmm. not, we're not outside of the government. We're within it. We are the people and we have the, in my opinion, the responsibility, the obligation, the, the, we are the ones who have to shift the system from the outside in and the inside out. And, you know, Buckminster Fuller makes it perfect. He says, don't challenge the system as it is, make a better system and put it right next door, you know? So I agree in, in many cases, you've got to build the medical system that's going to work and then actually put it to action before it becomes adopted as the next generation of medical system. You got to create something different, but the responsibility of the people to tell the government what to do has been abdicated to the corporations that are now telling the government what to do. Yeah, well, it's 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 politicians are like so. The way I, my analysis is right. Like, so if you're a member of Congress, right? There's the the budgets to run these campaigns right now are ludicrous, right? Because these like you know there's a hundred senators and the and the national budget is I don't know how much it is trillions, right? So for each seat is a you know worth you know a fair share of that amount right because they can shift huge sums around and so that's why there's a lot of money riding on this stuff right and so like i don't see like when there is this much money riding on it like that money is going to find a way to influence you know those politicians one of the things i forget which book it was but someone was writing a book about how like, you know, you can't directly bribe politicians, but you can bribe their family members, right? So then like it's sons or, or cousins or whatnot. And then it finds its way, like that's kind of the common practice because that's legal technically, even though it's, you know, immoral, but it's, it's legal. And so that's how it's done. And so the, like, it's kind of like, you know, those, like when you, when you outlaw something that there's a lot of money riding on and interest in, it's going to find a way to make a black market out of itself. Right. So, um, but I'm, I do see sort of a, an awakening in the population where we're no longer, a lot of people are waking up to like, Hey, we're being lied to, like things are not being very, being very uh, efficient or smart. There's too much corruption going on. And I, I believe that there's a new crop of leaders stepping up and being elected to, to public office, whether that's going to be uh, enough to, it, well, at the end of the day, it comes down to, do we care enough as citizens? 
right? To be like, no, we're not going to put up with this crap, right? Do we care enough? Do we care enough to run for office? Do we care enough to, to tell the difference between who's, you know, has character and moral morals and who doesn't and vote for the guy who with morals and character and not for the other person, right? Um, and um, given that, again, the media is bought and paid for as much as the politicians, right? So it's, it's a challenge. And it, it, and, and the other thing that might happen is that people with morals and character get elected and then like they get compromised very early on, right? I, I do believe that there's a lot of that kind of mafia kind of thing going on where we try to get something on you and now you're kind of like, it's really hard to dig yourself out of that. Not impossible, but it's hard, right? So, so just as a matter of um, the media being hard to trust these days, and being bought and paid for. That happened in the late 70s, early 80s with deregulation. And deregulation was a thing about how the government control is so bad. So we deregulate. But what we did is we stopped the news from being a nonprofit to being allowed to be for profit. So prior to that, it was required that they report the news. When they deregulated is when they started this 24-hour news cycle that now allows them to be for profit, which is what allowed them to make this be a special interest thing. And so I think if we understand that this is a result of something very specific, any of the, the things that we experience are results of very specific things that have been done that can be undone immediately, right? We don't have to wait. We could re-regulate the news to make sure that it's not for profit, that they have no financial incentives to report bad news. And maybe all of a sudden we'll be able to get journalist, journalistic integrity back where they have to name their sources, make sure that the information is correct before they put something out and et cetera and so forth. Um, like I said, I had a conversation with somebody in the media yesterday. So we had a great conversation about this kind of a thing. But, you know, going back to, to you, because I, I know I'm taking you completely off of topic, <laughs> normally, you know, used to, to speaking about, you know, like software and and all the wonderful help. Well, actually, if I can jump in here, because I, I have, this is, is actually a passion of mine. I have a project called Notable Nation, notablenation.com, which is about that. And we talked about like that. You mentioned wanting, you would rather be, you know, a consultant for politicians than being one. My stated goal is to be a future, not, not to be a future, but to be a, a special advisor to the president of the United States on conscious nation building. So together. <laughs> we could team up. <laughs> All right. Sounds like a plan. So that's, that's cool. I'm glad. I'm glad. Cause like I said, I, I look at your background and I go, okay, I can have this conversation with him and, and talk to him about the software and the, the niceties of life. Or I could, you know, challenge the status quo, take you outside your box a little bit and, and, you know, bring it to, to more of a, my kind of controversial polarizing, you know, conversations, because 
I think that the conversations that most people are having are at this surface level and they don't really do much to benefit the world, right? Or, or, or the world moving forward. So I had, I had a, a message that I sent to, uh, to a politician, to Bernie actually. So I'll, I'll just name him. I sent this letter to him and his team, right? That I wanted to have a conversation with him about, <laughs> about his healthcare program because to me, he was just um, changing the payer but not the incentive, right? Until we change the incentives, we'll never change the outcomes. The incentives are gonna get, or the outcomes are gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as long as the incentives are there the way they are. And I guess the reason why I don't, I don't like the, the government is evil thing or big government is evil or any government is evil or, or those kinds of things is because some of the massive problems that we've had was as soon as we deregulated certain industries, like we de deregulated the savings and loan industry, what happened with the savings and loan industry? We deregulated, um, you know, there, there used to be a thing about conglomerations. You couldn't be too big to fail because you weren't allowed to conglomerate your, your companies. And right now we just allowed within the last few years Bayer, which is the largest pharmaceutical company, to merge with Monsanto, which is the largest agricultural and food company on the planet. They, they control, I think it's 80 to 90% of all seed in the world. And so now we have the biggest chemical and agricultural company combined with the biggest pharmaceutical company making incentives for them to poison you so that then they can treat you. Whether that what they're going to do or not doesn't even matter because right. incentive is there and we allowed that incentive to be in existence because we yeah. allowed them to merge and to have intri intricately woven policies between the two of them that have like, well, here's how we're going to grow and then how's we're going to grow and we're going to grow this way and we're going to grow that way, right? So we've incentivized fraud. We've incentivized poisoning our air. We've incentivized all those things. And since the citizenry, for the most part, doesn't even know that that's existing or that's happening, they can never protest it. They can never speak up about it because they're unaware that it's in existence. And so the last thing that I want to talk to you about and I think this will lead back to some of uh, what we started with. But I have this premise, silence is a bully's best friend. And that premise ends with, so why are we, the people, allowing the bullies to win? So that's a psychological, emotional maturity. We go back to that first initial part of our conversation. Why are we allowing the bullies to win? Yeah, so the bullies being in this situation. Government and industry. Let's right. say. But it's all bullies. It's in general. It could be the bully in your class when there's 30 kids in the class and one kid's a bully and the 30 kids are afraid of them, right? 
It could be any scenario in which that small person, the dictator, the queen, the king, the nobleman, the business, right? When that small singular person who runs an entire organization, you're, you're a boss, you have 35 employees, right? So you could be the bully or you could be the victor for those people. You have that, that choice, right? But why do we, as people, let the bullies win when it goes completely against our own self-interest? Yeah, I think, honestly, like moral courage or just courage in general um, is, in, is in pretty short supply. I, I, have, I have a number of friends who are, um, let's say, have controversial uh, viewpoints and a lot of them business owners and they choose not to speak up because, you know, there's just no upside for them. Right. Like, you know, I say this, I'm going to alienate, you know, potentially half my staff, half my customer base, you know, uh, it's just like, what's, what's the point? Um, you could risk, you know, you, you know, getting censored on show, social media and, and, you know, who knows what else they're going to do. Right. There's threats of like, there's been in the past shutting down people's credit cards accounts so they can't take payment. Like there's all kinds of potential downside and, and, um, I'm someone who's who's decided I'm going to speak up regardless. It's costing me business. It's costing cost me some some great hires that I wanted to to have, and they're like, nope, I'm out. Um, and for me, that's that's what I have to do as a human being. Like there there's a cost. Even I'm here in this country on a visa, right? Do you think it hasn't crossed my mind that when my visa comes up for renewal? that some like person bureaucrat is going to look at my social media and be like, you know, wait, what did, what did you mean with that thing? What like, I mean, and maybe they'll look at it and be like, Hey, yay, thumbs up. Or maybe they'll look at it and be like, I, I don't know. Right. But chances are, it's going to be looked at. So these things might have, like, you know, already have real world consequences for me, but for me, it's more important to be an in integrity with my word. And not and and with what I stand for and stand up for what I believe in, even though it is costly. It's only when it's costly that it counts, right? Really. And so, and, and the more of us that that cower, that that lets us cower and lets lets us lets them, you know, quote unquote, them, but lets ourselves be silenced, the worse it gets. And the more of us speak up. If everybody was speaking up about the things that are most controversial and that are going to get you the most in trouble, then like nobody can do anything, right? Like it's just, you know, it's too much. So it only works when we let ourselves be bullied. So it comes down to that. What do we choose for us? Right. And that has impacts beyond you, beyond you and I, right. It has ripple effects and it, it, that's how we do it. And that's why we're letting it happen right now. Yeah, you know, I, I, in my profession, I, I say to doctors that, I, that I've consulted and worked with, like, how many people that are doctors that you know have the same feeling about the moral injury and the systems of medicine that are, you're being told to treat a patient and you know that it's not the best way to treat that patient? How many doctors? Oh, there's 20, 30, 40 that you know personally 
So what would happen if you all joined forces and got loud together? And then how many people that you don't know have that same feeling as well? And what would happen if those 40 people met your 40 people and then you joined forces and collaborated and came together? And then what's going to happen to those administrations, those bureaucrats, those money interested, incentivized people that really don't care about human health? They only care about that bottom line. What happens to them when you stand up? Oh, well, when I, when I stand up, they can't, you know, they can bully me as an individual, but they can't bully the group as a mass collection. I, and then I, and I kind of remind them, well, don't you know that you are the majority in the industry, not the minority, that you're allowing this small group of administrators and finance people tell you how to take care of a patient that they didn't spend 10 years learning how to do, you know? And it's like, it's, it's almost like having to, to take them down to a basic level of, of being a child, you know, and reminding them who they, who they are and what they're, what's possible for them. And, you know, it's, it's odd to me to see it, and go, okay, so where was the first time I was bullied when I was told to be silent? And that's kind of where I wanted to go with you a little bit. When's the first time? And then what do you do when you realize, when you ask that question and realize that you've allowed yourself to be bullied because you were bullied as a kid and you stopped maturing, <laughs> like I said, going back to the, the right. part of our conversation. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was bullied in school, um, you know, just, you know, from as early as I can remember, like preschool, kindergarten. Um, so up through, up through, I think, eighth grade, um, I, I, I changed schools between seventh and eighth grade and decided to sort of basically opt out of the social hierarchy and focus on, on, um, on, on, you know, school learning, um, and move to a school that, that valued that what was actually being taught. It was a private school from a public school to a private school. So that was definitely a, a, um, a major, it's been a you know, major impact on my life and ma major change point. And then had to go back and revisit that whole social element it was interesting last year actually um year and a half ago in april i was on necker island with richard branson and 30 you know um extinguished accomplished entrepreneurs some of <laughs> one of whom is a south african real estate mogul former friend of of nelson mandela um and and he has seven private jets, like seven, one guy. So I'm like, dude, Caesar, why do you have seven jets? I don't see one. I like it. I buy it. Anyway, so like really, really like accomplished entrepreneurs, some of them. And I felt like I was right back in school, right? With these, like, do I belong here? Am I worthy? Like all of that, all of those feelings came back up again. And it was amazing because it really allowed me to heal some of those old wounds from my school years. And it 
it really set me off. I've, I've, my entire life up until then, I'd been a terrible quote unquote, like networker. I'd been very isolated, just sitting at home in front of my computer, programming, you know, my company's all remote. So I just get to sit in this room all day. It really changed my life, like being stuck on an island with 30 high level entrepreneurs for a week, because it allowed me to reprocess all of these emotions, right? That was a major, major win for me from that week. Um, and so since then, I've been opened up myself so much more to meet other people. Um, so yeah, it's really is, is um, you know, I, I feel like too, like I've been bullied in relationships. You know, um, you know my, my first marriage was um, uh, uh, like there would some, it wasn't like, I just mentioned it because it's kind of counter- intuitive right there were incidents of domestic violence but they're towards me right <laughs> so and but it was just like how i grew up really learning to relate right that that like well i'm wrong i'm bad i'm probably did something and if she like hits me it's probably because i deserve it like i mean it was she wasn't going to beat me to a pulp or anything like that it wasn't it was quite small in 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 that sense but still just that sentiment that that was somehow okay right like so I think it, you know, how we relate really impacts, tends to impact all of our relationships, right? So, and, and we tend to very much project authority, like our relationship with our parents, we project that onto the government, onto, you know, some person in uniform, onto our boss, onto like money, uh, onto time, right? Concepts like that. So that work of healing our relationships is another like lifelong journey and process that pays dividends on so many levels. Absolutely. And, and we will definitely have to get into, a, you know, another conversation less controversial, more on the individual rather than the, the systems. But I wanted to, to expose that, that, you know, that the system is us. We are the system. And I think people forget that we made this shit up and we can make it up better. So why don't you give three or four, you know, tips and trips, tricks, actionable steps that the audience can take to create their new tomorrow today and activate their vision for a better world? You know, it's, 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 um, comes always back to the basics because the basics is what people miss like always right we we're so busy wanting to do all the advanced stuff and we just overlook the most fundamental things so number one what do you want what is it you want what is the outcome what does it look like what does success look like how will how, how how will it feel whatever it is if we're talking about you know what does the ideal government look like right or more realistically for your own life, right? What, what is it that you want for your health, your work, your relationships, your creativities are get really clear on that. And then just start moving towards that. Right. So many people are focused on what they don't want. They're unhappy. They just want to complain to someone like victimhood. Oh my God. It's a whole other conversation we can have. I've spent so much of my life feeling like 
if only I had had better parents or better friends or better, whatever, been born in a different country, like whatever, I'd be more successful and then I'd be happy. And the only result of that was that I had to remain unhappy and unsuccessful just to prove them that there was their fault, right? Until I was like, dude, no, like this is on me. I can choose, I can, I can create happiness and success for myself. And like, they never did anything wrong. It's fine, right? It's on me. So, and that's again, like, instead of focusing on what you don't want and focusing on blaming people, focus on what you want and what you can do and then get working, get, get to work on that. Um, awesome. And there's one other thing, it would be to really get curious about what it is that you're here to do. Right? That sense of like, of mission, of purpose in life. For me, that's been such a game changer. It was, you know, in February, 2008, 12, almost 13 years ago now, my life hasn't been the same. Everything changed in that moment that I just knew what I was here to do. And having that sense of mission is so important. That sense of higher purpose, higher purpose, higher meaning in life. I feel like so many of us are lost. We get lost in the details, in the minutiae, in the like, whatever the gossip and like who who you know violated us in some way or whatever because we've lost that sense of deeper meaning deeper purpose i get that so how can people get a hold of you if they like what you said and they want to learn more about you or your software and how that can might possibly help them how can people get a hold of you yes uh so um, three websites, calvincorelli.com is my personal website. Notablenation.com is the political project that we've, we talked about. And then simplero.com, simplero.com, one word, is the software. So um, those will be three. And you can email me, Calvin, at any of those, um, and it'll go to me. And um, yeah, it's really, you know, yeah, some some player. If you wanna, if you're if you're doing some kind of business selling, education selling, information, um, notable nation. If you want to get involved in that movement that we have, we have a show com- coming up. Like every Thursday night, we're gonna do a show called Getting Real, where we discuss some issue and then just try to get real solving it. And then um, CalvinCorelli.com for my sort of follow my my personal and everything that I do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Calvin, for for coming on. I know the audience has gotten a lot of benefit from this conversation and the things that you had to say. And so um, I really am am grateful for this conversation, for you helping people create their new tomorrow today and activate their vision for a better world. I am your host, Ari Gronich, and this is Awesome conversations with Ari. No, it's not. It's it's just creating a new tomorrow. But uh, remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment below so we can start conversations that move the country forward, move yourselves forward, and create your new tomorrow today. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, 
Go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.